University professors spend a lot of time talking to each other about popular culture in academic journals and at academic conferences. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals and I want to talk to you. Some of the most brilliant thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard and I'm on a mission to change that. Brilliant people, fascinating conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell and this is a hard hat area you're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is Dr. Christopher Bell. You are on the Deconstruction Workers podcast. And joining me today, today is a good day for you, dear listener, because we have not one, but two new players in the studio today, which I am super excited about. But before we get to them... Joining me today on the line is founding deconstruction worker, longtime deconstruction worker, Dr. Lauren Kamachi. Dr. Kamachi is an independent scholar now in Cleveland, but has been with us for a very long time. Welcome back to the show, Lauren. I'm so glad to be here once again. Also joining us on the line, as I said, we have two new players. Our first new guest is Dr. Elizabeth Morrow Clark. Dr. Clark is a full professor now of history at West Texas A&M University. Welcome to the show for the first time, Elizabeth. Glad to be here. And our second new player is Talanda Henderson. Talana is a doctoral student at the University of Connecticut working in English. Welcome to the show, Talanda. Thank you very much. So today... I have brought three members, three core members of the leadership team of Harry Potter Studies into the studio. We've talked about Harry Potter Studies on this podcast in the past. I am the chair of Harry Potter Studies, the founding chair, for the last eight years now, I believe it is. And Lauren and Elizabeth and Talanda have all been with us forever. And we are talking today about a thing that well I don't want to I don't want to bias the conversation too much. We are talking today <laughs> about JK Rowling. We're talking about her specifically, but we're also talking about people like her. We've done Joss Whedon in the past on this show content creators who later we find out are a problem in one way or another. And what do we do with a work when the author of that work is in some way problematic. That's about yeah. all I want to say as prep. I want to add a prep because okay, I think it would be it, helpful. So, so Elizabeth, Talanda, Chris, and I all met through Harry Potter studies, but we are all coming from pretty different backgrounds. Yes. So Chris and I are coming in from, as we discussed in season one of the Deconstruction Workers, uh, we are coming from rhetoric, though I come from critical masculinities and presidential rhetoric. Uh, Chris comes from feminism and girlhood studies and popular culture. Talanda is a great background in being not just a librarian, but also a popular culture and young adult fiction scholar. And disability studies and fat studies, is that correct, Talanda? Mm -hmm. Yes. And Elizabeth is a historian. So Elizabeth and I, when we talked in prep for this episode, did talk, we talked about Wagner because, <laughs> because you know, talk about toxic creators of popular content. So we are coming from very different disciplines, even though we are all coming in from the core connection of being Harry Potter studies 
people and big time Harry Potter fans. Yes, I think that that's a good starting point for this conversation is that we have four scholars coming from three different fields, but as Lauren just said, even she and I are not necessarily doing the same kind of work, even though we're in the same field. So the impetus for this, and I don't even, I don't think I'm even the right person to intro this in this very specific thing because I don't pay attention to JK Rowling at all. Uh, I pay zero attention to her. I don't pay attention to her either. I found out about all of this because Dan Radcliffe put Mm -hmm. out his statement and I was like, wait, what did she do now? It wasn't that I was following her and then I haven't paid attention to her since, at least since Dumbledore was gay (laughs) or she said so. We need to take a step back. So most people who are in the Harry Potter milieu will know what we're referring to sideways here. But for those of you who are not familiar with what's going on, we are referring to J.K. Rowling's most recent foray into Mm -hmm. being what is known as a TERF. Talanda, do you want to take it from here and explain a little bit more about what the fact that this is not new? Yes. And that this is just the most egregious, most recent. Yeah. Post. So I think the reason why this one has hit as as hard as it has, this one being transphobic tweets and then an essay that she wrote on her own website that just was virulent is because people like Dan Radcliffe and Eddie Redmayne and Noma Dumas Wednesday have come up and said, this is not okay. And so what the most recent controversy started when she clapped back, if you will, at a tweet that referred to people who menstruate. And she was like, I'm sure there's a word for these people. What could it possibly be? And then had these versions of the word woman trying to get to that word. And then people were like, that's not okay. And then she wrote the essay to say, yes, it is. And then people clapped back at her to say, no, it's not. What Lauren was alluding to, though, is that this is not the first indication that we've had that she's been transphobic. In December, she tweeted in support of a British radical feminist which is its own issue, but somebody who was misgendering trans people in the workplace got their contract not renewed and then sued because they felt discriminated against because they weren't allowed to misgender trans people in the workplace. I've heard that she's now appealing the fact that the court said that she didn't have the right to do that. Right. But even before that, the author of Harry Potter, whose name I do not say, She has liked and followed transphobic people in the past. And in my research for an essay on this, I've discovered I've never read any of her Cormant Strike books, but there's a scene in The Silkworm with a trans woman who is threatened with prison rape if she doesn't conform to the behavior that is expected of her in that particular moment. It's sort of like, if you don't stop that, I'm going to tell them you tried to kill me and then you'll go to prison and that won't be good for you, Pippa, not pre-op. That was 2014. So this is not new. So because this is an educational podcast, we do, it's much educational as entertainment. I do want to take another step back and give a few terms here so that listeners who are new to this conversation won't feel 
lost. So if you are already up on this vocabulary, thank you so much for continuing to listen while we help other people. So when we say trans, of course, we're talking about transgender people, people who are non-binary and, and those who do not conform to the idea that there are only two genders, only two sexes, and that the body is the defining factor for which you fall into. And when we use the word TERF, T-E-R-F, we are referring to a specific type of radical feminism called trans-exclusionary radical feminism. It comes out of the second wave of feminism from the 1970s into the 1980s and has consistently presented those who are transgender as being essentially posers, that it's a, a way to take womanhood away from women, real, quote unquote, real women. The other term you'll probably hear us use is cisgendered. Cisgendered is essentially a, a, an antonym for uh, transgender. If you if your body and gender align with one another, does that pretty much cover the sort of core vocabulary? Yeah. The other thing that you might see in the news is the idea of gender critical feminism, which is how people that we, that I would call TERFs describe themselves. So they are, they believe in, they stand up for, if you will, biological sex and don't believe that gender is a thing. So gender critical and trans exclusionary are referring to the same thing. And a lot of trans exclusionary people aren't radical feminists. So that some people are like, blah, 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 blah about that. And it's just like, okay, so trans exclusionary people and gender critical people are often the same people. Yes. I think there's another term that we probably ought to define here at the outset. And that term is gender. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's fair. I think that's fair. As someone who has spent his entire professional career in, as Lauren said earlier, girlhood studies, one of the things that I think the average person does still in 2020 cannot get their brain around is that biological sex and gender are not the same thing. They are not. And the easiest way to think about this is sex has to do with your actual body. Sex has to do with your with your physical makeup. It has to do with your chemical makeup. It has to do with all kinds of things that happen inside of your skin, okay? Gender is performative. Gender is a social construct. Gender is a thing you learn that helps you navigate inside of a society. Sex is internal, gender is external. Sex is a thing that we are born with Gender is a thing you are not born with. Gender is a thing that you learn, which means gender is a thing that is fluid. Gender is a thing that can change over time. Gender is a thing that can change by the day or by the hour, depending on how you choose to perform it. And within that spectrum, there is a wide range of behaviors that range from the feminine to the masculine, all points in between, and there are people who choose not to perform on that spectrum at all. Those concepts are so vital to this conversation because 
People pretend as though you are born with a gender and you are not. Hence gender reveal parties, the title of which shows the confusion that Chris is talking about. Yeah. And the and the, the way that hegemonic structures double down on things to protect them, to protect and begin the to gender quo. people before they are even born. It's a fetus for the love of heaven. Like, yeah. <laughs> so one of the problems with saying that you are a gender critical feminist is that you are in and of itself confusing the terms gender and sex because you're not gender critical. What you are is you are attempting to defend biological sex as the determiner of gender, and it is not. It's not. So the biggest problem we have in this culture, and by this culture I just mean Western culture in general, is that we don't have other kinds of terminology for sex as we do for gender because we've used those two terms interchangeably for so long. So it's why I get really, really angry at my students when they use male and female as nouns. They are not nouns, they are adjectives. And they are adjectives that describe biological sex as opposed to the terms man and woman, which necessarily define gender. We have different words. We've just used them interchangeably for so long that we forget they're not the same thing. And that's, as a, as a gender scholar, I, that is the hill I will die on. <laughs> I think this is one of the reasons that the scholarly community and the fandom community has a right to be so frustrated with rolling is because as a wordsmith, as a person who introduced mm. a whole we can even say generation of readers who are now young adults to to reading and to vocabulary and to sensitivities related to identity now pretends that she can't understand language. This snarky hmm. women, women playing with the word was unnecessary and it was, I would say, beneath her for the role that she has played in the lives of so many people. Which is why one can say, I don't listen to anything that person says, and yet it's still harming many, many listeners and followers and fans. Elizabeth, can you talk a little bit more about when you said the role that she and that Harry Potter have played for the community? Because I think that that's, so if we're going to answer the why now, why are we having this conversation now conversation, right? It's because we are joining our colleagues at MuggleNet and our colleagues at the Chestnut Hill Harry Potter Academic Conference in saying this has been an inclusive space for so long that this is this is a bummer. So can you talk a little bit more about, you know, your experience with or your observation of how the Harry Potter studies, Harry Potter culture, how all of that has, has been an inclusive space? Sure. I mean, I think I would start just by saying that the importance of that inclusivity is demonstrated in the cooperation between MuggleNet and Leaky Cauldron, which hasn't always been the case. Right. Yeah. So, and their joint statements basically saying this person that they have, I mean, Leaky Cauldron and Pottercast, and it's like a hagiography of rolling, right? Her voice has always been sacrosanct. And 
Uh, it cannot be anymore. And her validity in defending children with her organizations like Lumos is also, it has less credibility when she speaks like this. So I don't know if I can speak for all fans, but I think uh, for me as a historian, my entry to Harry Potter comes from the blood conversations that are used and the context of Harry Potter seems like it's set between the two European experiences of world war and the vocabulary of power or imperialism in the first one and the clear vocabulary of race or blood status in the second one. And so we have this whole generation of fans who learned from the wizarding world that you could be more than one thing, right? You could be born in a muggle family, but also have a wizarding talent or identity or self. And that was not necessarily something you immediately inherited from your parents. It was part of you and you went to that school in order to learn about it and control it. We have characters who can transfigure into animals. Some of them, we have characters who against their will transfigure into something else. And then we have, you know, nerdy kids and girls and underdogs and, and so forth coming forward as the heroes of a story um, that might not be new, but the combination of these things and its popularity for students in the 2000s uh, was critical. And as for why now, I don't know about why Rowling has chosen to dig her heels in now, except that everyone is sitting and thinking more because of the pandemic. <laughs> and unfortunately, we have the time and the mental energy to focus on how things are said can be inappropriate or wrong or culturally ignorant or blind. And so I think that in the United States, at least, these conversations happen now because we're under a lot of mental stress. Some people under severe personal, physical, economic stress, and we have some problems to solve. But also right now is seems like a shame for the night, right now to be a time for for rolling who could be a refuge to be sparking this ugly as my Atlanta mother-in-law would say ugly <laughs> talk and it's interesting to talk about the timing too because I've been doing a lot of reading about people responding to her nonsense if you will and a lot of the articles that I'm seeing online are like they're not so much talking about the pandemic, although that's a very good point, as they're saying, Black Lives Matter is in the streets right now, and you're distracting from that conversation. Stop it. And I'm like, if you're gonna, if a person's gonna be horrible, they're not gonna care when they're doing it. I think it's unrealistic to expect somebody who's being bigoted to time their bigotry well. <laughs> but, but that's in terms of, I just wanted to bring that into the conversation in terms of timing. And she did it during Pride Month. And Pride Month, yes. I like that line, though, Talanda. You can't expect someone who's being bigoted to, to, to time their bigotry. We could apply that in so many instances. Yeah. Yep. But the, the thing about Pride Month is, and, and this, and mm -hmm. is that Rowling would claim 
that she is yeah. a friend to the gay and lesbian community. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I don't know where we want to go with... Just to remind everybody that Pride did not start because of gay and lesbian people. Pride started when a trans woman of color threw a brick at police. So the movement benefits a lot more than trans women of color, but trans women of color are getting left behind mm-hmm. and are getting killed <laughs> at these rates that are just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And underreported, the crimes against them are being underreported and underinvestigated in some cases. So, yeah. I think it's important then for us to point out that the, the conversation that Rowling is not allowing to die down, I think, is directly putting people at risk. Although she would claim that she's defending the vulnerable, right? She claims that she's defending children. She claims that she's defending women. Mm -hmm. By using the argument of the bathroom thing that, oh, well, transgender people are going to attack your children in bathrooms, which is scientifically, statistically, bunch of (laughs) That's not... (laughs) And not only that, but she's deciding who is vulnerable and who is not. Mm. And she is saying things like, I've talked to lots of therapists and counselors and professionals in the field, and they agree with me with no receipts. When I read an article on Medium about this, every other sentence has a phrase that is linked to another article, to some kind of source. And she's not citing her sources. She's not like, there's a point where she says, many women feel uncomfortable with this. I know this because they've told me. Okay, so you're not going to tell us their names. That makes sense. I'm not questioning that. But give us a rough number, you know? Like, don't just make these wild, broad, sweeping sweeping, generalizations. Yes, without context, without without receipts, by which I mean, how do you know that? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and that's partly coming from a perspective as a scholar, as a librarian, but it's also just coming from a sense of, I mean, I, I teach writing right now, so this sense of rhetoric of <laughs> you can't just be in a, an echo chamber with yourself. I mean, you can, <laughs> that's problematic. Dr. Bell knows that this is the part where Dr. Clark says, you need sources. Historians want to see proof of claims and I love background and so forth from authors but at some point I told Lauren that I was really concerned that for me to speak on this I'm glad it was you Tawanda that brought it up that it's just so very elitist academic intellectual well I don't see the deep sociological evidence that you say you've read a lot of articles But in fact, my 15-year-old kid sent me a YouTuber who had commentary on the anti-trans rolling material. And that person also just said, there's no evidence. She says she talked to a lot of people. She says she read a lot of articles, but we don't know what she's reading. So again, I come back to the fandom. What are kids learning or what are readers learning about how we know information, she's been held up as this like classic scholar, Bible scholar, children's literature scholar. The references that look like Tolkien or, or, or C.S. Lewis are intentional 
because she's read deeply, you know, and then this. Yeah. Echo Chamber of Celebrity. What's interesting about that is that she's also been held up as the romantic ideal of the original genius, Mm. right? So there's this idea that I've been reading about has been came really to gel in the romantic period where instead of being a cog in a machine, the writer became an author, a creator. They're inspired and that inspiration comes from within them as opposed to using pre-established rules to say pre-established things in new ways, but not in any way that would grant them copyright. Copyright came about around the same time as this idea that the writer is an individual creator with something unique to say. And so this idea that Harry Potter strolled into her head fully formed, right, which is part of the hagiography, is to say that everything about Harry Potter comes from She Who Must Not Be Named, that it comes from her and that's where it gets problematic like i haven't paid attention to her or her tweets because she keeps adding to the universe without giving us new texts and then it's like so i'm already in this frame of what's known as the death of the author in terms of here is the roland bart says that the meaning of a text comes from the struggle between the reader and the text and that the birth of the reader is dependent on the death of the author. Not a literal put them in the ground, six feet under kind of death, but a sort of how how relevant are you to the continuing conversation of the interpretation of your work? And the, the theory of the death of the author, which is reputing this original genius romantic idea, is to say, No, actually, you're no longer relevant to this conversation. I appreciate how we opened here, Tolanda, with you saying you didn't pay attention to this conversation until you saw Radcliffe's reaction. And I thought in that moment, before we go off into canon conversations, (laughs) about how Dan is, in this moment, as authentic or more an authentic a representation of who Harry Potter is than Rowling. The two Mm -hmm. of them, I don't see that they are in some sort of battle, right? But that his voice has seems to me to have more power because he is the embodiment of Harry Potter and its values. And he is that generation and he can speak directly to it. Emma Watson makes is more conscientiously on social media and Radcliffe typically not at all. Well, he didn't even post in social media. He posted at the Trevor Project, which is a an organization that is supportive of trans and I, I think, LGBTQ youth. I'm I I'm really regretting that I can't say that with positive. Yeah. Trevor Project was from '98. It was based on a film that was eerily similar to the death of Tyler Clementi. A kid gets outed by his peers in a very public way and takes his and takes his life. Yeah. And, And Radcliffe has been, you know, he made a major donation to them about 10 years ago. So he's been involved with them. And that's that's where he chose to speak out, which is worth noting. He's been consistent in his allyship there, yes. There's another angle here that we haven't yet explored, but that is what I keep coming back to in my head because, full disclosure... In many ways, this is 
a not my circus, not my monkeys kind of situation for me. <laughs> I have an out here, which is this is not my community. And this is not a thing that affects me personally. And this is not, I have, obviously I have, I have trans friends, I have trans colleagues, but you know, that's not gonna, that's not going to, nothing in this conversation is going to hit me directly. My, my life, my body is not on the line here. And so because of that, it would be really super easy for me to check out. And it is really super easy for people to check out of this conversation. The thing that keeps me in this conversation is that I have a huge issue with people who punch down. Mm. I have a huge issue with people who punch down. I think it's easy. I think it's weak. I think it's coming from my own field. I think it's poor rhetoric. There's a reason why I don't go to the elementary school and fist fight third graders. Because I don't have to. And there's nothing to be gained from doing that. If you are in a position of power, there is nothing to be gained by stepping in the neck of someone who is just trying to live their life. And that, for me, is the bigger issue that I have with J.K. Rowling. I will be 100% honest, I don't care what her position on transgendered people is. I don't care. I don't care what yours is, for that matter. Any single one of the listeners, I don't care what your position is. Feel free to have whatever position you want. I think it kind of makes you a terrible person. But that comes from my own very personal very core belief that people should just leave other people alone. Anyone who knows me really well knows I have a very nothing you do affects me and nothing I do should affect you kind of way of being in the world. Live your life how you want to live it and I don't care. I don't want to know what's going on in your house. I don't want to know what you're putting in your body. As long as what you're doing doesn't affect me or anybody else, I don't care. And this is a thing that fundamentally affects nobody. How somebody else performs gender, how somebody else lives their life, how somebody who somebody else wants to marry, who somebody else wants to hang out with, none of that has any effect on me. Why should I care? And there's a there's a real punching down element to JK Rowling in the way that she's doing things where no, nothing one single transgender person does has any effect on her life whatsoever, leave other people alone. You have no reason to meddle in the lives of other people who don't affect you at all. And when you're in a position of power with a giant microphone and you use that giant microphone to punch down, it makes me lose more respect for you than your actual position does. I don't, I, her position is dumb, but it's not illegal to be dumb. It's, <laughs> Her position is dumb in public in ways that hurt other people, and now I have a problem. Right. Right. Now, now, now it's an issue for me. Chris can probably, I don't know how much history of second wave feminism you have, but I feel like there's one of the points she made in her commentary and in her continuing to try to dig herself out of her hole was that, in fact, the existence of trans women does negatively affect her as an individual mm -hmm. because it takes her womanness away from her. In what way? Which, 
In what way does one single other person affect her? It doesn't. It doesn't. But I think this is the, the historical part that helps contextualize the thinking. The idea of the original TERFs was that a trans woman is literally the last, the final frontier of men trying to invade woman's space and woman's sacred space. And that to, to attempt to embody woman is the final taking of that. And anyone who has that argument is such a short-sighted person because, you know, me and, me and Elizabeth in particular have have had this conversation like who would who would choose who would choose to get discriminated again this is the same so i'm gonna really roll a grenade into the room now because this is the exact same conversation that i have been having with other black people for like six years about rachel dolezal so people were all bent on a shape about rachel dolezal presenting as black and how dare she and she's taking away and i'm like if one other human being's quote-unquote black experience has anything to do with yours that's not their problem that's yours it's just the same feeling i have about people who are like well gay marriage ruins the sanctity of marriage your marriage has literally zero to do with my marriage and if your marriage has any influence whatsoever on my conception of my own marriage my marriage sucks right you need a damn counselor my marriage is between me and my wife and exactly zero other people that has no bearing whatsoever on my life. What Rachel Dolezal <laughs> does in Spokane, Washington, by the way, as a representative of the NAACP doing work on behalf of black people, what she does in Spokane has literally nothing to do with my day-to-day black experience. Nothing. And not one single transgendered woman has any effect whatsoever on J.K. Rowling's life. Not one. People need to stop with this idea that group membership somehow then trickles down to every group member. It does not, in a very literal sense. The problem is we live in an entire country full of Alice Kravitz from Bewitched. We live in an entire country of people who wanna (laughs) stand at the fence, look over into your yard, and then criticize what you're doing behind your fence. Leave other people alone get out of everyone else's life i wonder then how does that relate to the idea of community (laughs) community is a voluntary participatory act okay community is a voluntary participatory act you engage in community voluntarily and if you choose not to be a part of the community then you choose not to be a part of the community. I think this issue of, of punching down is really very important to return to that unless somebody wants to. There is an essay, an article that was published in Transgender Studies Quarterly by Sarah Ahmed called An Affinity of Hammers, where she talks about what happens when your existence is the evidence, right? So you're in an argument and somebody's like, well, you need to prove that you exist as who you say you are before I say that you aren't who you say you are. And now it's up to you to defend your existence as part of the conversation and how that is inherently violent. Chris, this reminds me so much of the episode where we talked about 
fandom, like, what was the thing you said? The person who comes in wearing the jersey. Oh yeah. From the team. I mean, this is this is this comes back to conversations of how popular culture reflects our world. That people do this, they police fandoms in the same way they police things that are much more real and much more deadly. One of the things that Ahmed says is that it's like getting hammered at all the time. And that one of the things that we can do, she's cisgendered and she's very clear about that in her essay and writing as an ally. But as a non-binary person, I immediately identified with her saying that one of the things we can do is to hammer back. And that's why I don't say her name anymore. It's why she is you-know-who and she who must not be named and the chief transphobe. When I'm writing, I'm working on an essay right now for a book, as a book chapter for an anthology or a compiled book on Harry Potter. And I have green light from the editors to simply not use her name throughout the whole essay. So it's it's the off of this, it's redacted that because names have power. And she taught us that, <laughs> right? Yes. Um, yes. Names have power. And sometimes the power is to create fear so that you don't want to use the name. But sometimes the power is in invoking, the, in using the name invokes more than I'm willing to give her. She does not believe that I exist. So I'm going to do everything I can as a Harry Potter scholar to act and write as though she does not. And she also taught us fear of the name only increases mm. fear of the thing itself. And you're not a vampire or a ghost. You exist. Whether or right. not she believes in you is irrelevant. Saying right. she doesn't believe in transgendered people is like saying she doesn't believe in turtles. Turtles don't care if you believe in them. They go on about their turtle business. That gives her way too much power. Way too much power. And this is the problem that I have in these kinds of conversations in general, is that ultimately she's a lady who wrote a story and it sold some copies. And at the end of the day, <clears throat> some of y'all never grew up with Orson Scott Card and it shows. So... <laughs> Wait, 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 before we go on, there's this, before you get on your Orson Scott, I know you said you want to rant about him. Actually, there, before I do any of that at all, let's take a break. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to uh, do some commercials. We're going to come yeah. back in two and two and we'll pick this up on the other side. Did you know that the Deconstruction Workers podcast has a Patreon page? Well, we do. We have a Patreon page. It is www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW. You can donate as little as $1 a month towards keeping the lights on, and we would really appreciate your support. So click on over to www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW and pledge your support if you enjoy what you're hearing. Now, back to the show. And we're back. So before the break, I was going to get on my giant soapbox um, because I uh, this is this is not my first rodeo with these kinds of people. I as a as a longtime science fiction fan, as a science fiction fan since I was a kid, my Harry Potter was Ender's Game. Ender's Game 
has the same kind of centrality to our conceptions about about war and about humanity and about peace and about what it means to be a hero uh, as Harry Potter has had for another generation, for a different generation. And it wasn't until I was an adult, well into my adulthood, that I understood Orson Scott Card is not an okay person. He's not an okay person in a lot of ways. His main target uh, has been gay people. He is virulently homophobic. And I use that term very specifically. I've, I've talked about this on this program before, how I think the term homophobia actually gives people way too much credit. You're not homophobic, you're heterosexist, you're not afraid of anything, you're just an asshole. That's, I, that's not, I, I, I don't like the use of that term. I think homophobia is a very specific thing and only applies in some very specific circumstances. Whereas I do think most transphobic behavior is actually phobic behavior. Um, I, I, I do think it's very different. But in Orson Scott Card's case, I think he is actually homophobic. I think he is actually afraid of homosexuality, and I think he's afraid of homosexual people. And I think it shows in a lot of ways, and he spent an awful lot of money, money that I probably gave him, to try to hurt gay people, to try, legislatively. He donated a lot to a lot of anti-gay legislation. To the point where the Enders game community got together and basically ousted him. There were campaigns to ghostwalk the film when the film came out. For those of you who don't know what ghostwalking is, it's where you go to the theater and you buy a ticket for something else and then you go see the movie so that you can see the movie but that he doesn't get the money for it. There were efforts to boycott the purchase of his book and to distribute it via the seven seas as i often say we could do a whole episode on why i don't think there's any such thing as piracy but there were efforts to float his book around on torrent instead of purchasing it whatever i have been on the record in the past as saying i am not a fan of boycotting particularly mediated works because you're not going to hurt jk rowling you're going to hurt a grip you're gonna hurt an electrician. You're gonna hurt the third assistant camera person. Rolling's gonna be fine. Those people are gonna starve. So I am not a fan of saying I'm not buying tickets to her play anymore. People who work in theater are hurting for ticket sales. Please buy tickets to the play. You're not going to hurt JK Rowling by not going to the play. You're gonna hurt artists. That said, I do think that there is permanent damage done to a work and an author when they are publicly shamed for things that deserve public shame. Ender's Game lives forever. Orson Scott Card is a pariah. His work will live on. His work is basically living on independently of him. He has been removed from the conversation. And I honestly believe at some level, at some point, that will be the same thing that happens to J.K. Rowling. Harry Potter, Hermione, Ron, they will live on. J.K. Rowling will be erased from the conversation. 
in many ways as it should be. It's like, hey, did you know Lewis Carroll probably was a pedophile? Yeah, we've known that for quite some time. We still read Alice in Wonderland. People still really like Alice in Wonderland. I think that is probably also where J.K. Rowling is headed. That's the true death of the author, as Talanda brought up before. There's a line from a... I love this movie, but it's not very good. It's It was a TV miniseries called Merlin from the 90s, and it had a Sam Neill in it. And at the end, they're like... She's like, what, are you going to kill me? And he goes, no, we're just going to forget about you because you're not that important. Yeah. And that, that I think, is, is I think what you're getting at, Chris, yeah. is that... And that's the thing that's been hard is a lot of folks who have taken solace in the Harry Potter series. I mean, it's been a, a, a haven for mm-hmm. queer people over the time it's existed. And they've said, how do I go back to reading this knowing the person who created it hates me hates who I am and I think your point Chris is that well I think I go back to the point you made in an episode when we talked about canon in season what three where the fandom will know the work better than the author ever Mm -hmm. could and it becomes the ownership of the fans the moment it's out of your hands the author you know it's authorship in the twitter age is an interesting phenomenon but that that won't change that harry potter is that any fandom is what the fans decide it's going to be as much as what the author might try to make it be i think that that's a good thing here's the the cynic in me and we've had this conversation offline uh, the cynic in me says, actually, this doesn't matter at all. The The cynic in me says 3% of the Harry Potter reading population pays attention to Twitter and cares at all about what's happening. And exactly zero people are going to not read Harry Potter because J.K. Rowling said some stuff on Twitter that they never heard and kind of don't care about in the first place. The cynic in me says this won't hurt her at all unless enough people get to I I think people are targeting the wrong thing in 2020 how do you get Tucker Carlson to resign from Fox it's not by talking trash about Tucker Carlson on Twitter it's about getting T-Mobile to to pull its sponsorship Mm -hmm. this is not going to matter unless Warner Brothers gets involved Yeah. so I think you know, if people really, if there's some young activists out here who are really trying to make this a thing, stop tweeting at J.K. Rowling because she doesn't care. Organize things to target Warner Brothers and to get them to take a stand against her position. That's the only way it's going to matter. I come from media studies. I understand how the production supply chain works. And I understand you're mad and nobody cares in a corporate sense they're not shutting down the wizarding world because jk rowling doesn't like trans people that's not going to happen until it does it's not going to happen until you make it a thing 
for Universal Studios. It's not gonna it's not gonna happen until you make it a thing for Warner Brothers. Going directly at J.K. Rowling is not going to work. I'm sorry, it's just not. History has shown that's not how you do it. You go after the sponsors, you hit them where it hurts, and that's in the pocketbook. So, and you might be sitting there like, well, that's contradictory to a thing you just said five minutes ago, but it's really not. <laughs> because because the kid the kid who works at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter is not going to lose their job. They're going to get moved over to Marvel Island. They're going to get moved. Right, right. You know, that's very different than not going to see the stage play and, and hurting those people. That It's a very different thing. Yeah, I, I think there are ways that this could be a big deal, a, a much bigger deal than it is. Right now, I think it's very... While people on the inside of it think it's a huge deal and think it's spreading like wildfire, from a macro sense, it's still very small potatoes and it needs to not be small potatoes. So there there are ways to maximize the effectiveness. It's interesting because you talk about, what you're talking about is a difference in power. Yes, exactly. Which is that the almost the continued existence of her as a creator is not based on what she does it's based on what warner brother does i've been wondering will the rest of the fantastic beast movies be made or not and they probably will unless this becomes an issue for warner brothers is what you're saying yeah exactly but this reminds me of what we were saying earlier about how much power she has and doesn't have you know when i said she doesn't think I exist. And you said you're giving her entirely too much power. There's a difference between giving somebody power and living in a body that's impacted by the power that she has. Right. As far as I know, I'm the only trans person in this conversation. And so my dog in this fight, this, what's at stake for me is different from the rest of the contributors here. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. so to say that when I say she doesn't believe that I exist as a non-binary person. When I read her essay, I was gaslit by it. I had to get onto Facebook and say, wait a minute, she's wrong, isn't she? Because it was written so politely. It was written so much like, so tenderly and with care. And I was like, wait a minute. Part of me started to think maybe she's right. And then I was like, that just is violence against my personhood. And so. I think it's important to say that she has power that needs to be checked and that I shouldn't necessarily be the one checking that power because I'm the one getting hit by most hammers by what she's wielding right now. Exactly. Um, It's exhausting having to educate people mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. why they shouldn't oppress you. And this is what I mean about punching down. And this is what I mean about it's not going to matter until it matters. Because, yeah, you can clap back at her on Twitter and it makes you feel better. But you know what's making me feel better? Stephen King is kicking her in the stomach every day Mm -hmm. on Twitter. And Mm -hmm. and J.K. Rowling thinks she has literary power. She is not Stephen King. Mm -hmm. It's Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson and even Mm -hmm. Rupert Grint, who does not get involved in anything, coming out and saying this is a problem and you should stop doing this. Muggledent and Leaky, who who their literal existence depends on her. Uh, right. Yeah, but slightly different. 
slightly different. Well, yeah, because, but I mean, still, people coming out who have things to lose by saying, hey, My bro. 14-year-old daughter does not know what Leaky Cauldron or MuggleNet are. Right. Uh, she stands Emma Watson like she is a golden idol that <laughs> butterflies fly out of her feet every step she takes through the world. It's, it is a different level of influence. Fair, fair, fair. So, yeah, I mean... I do think that there is a power differential, but I do think that there are very powerful people who do believe you exist fighting on your behalf. So I'm this speaking of very powerful people who are absolutely impacted by this. I can't help but wonder how Ezra Miller's doing. Yes. So Ezra is the lead one of the leads in Fantastic Beasts, who is beholden to her work, who is non-binary. That mm. sucks. That sucks to be them. That would be a very hard position to be in, I would imagine, because do you quit? You could. But is that going to impact her as much as it's going to impact you? Exactly. 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 And and if you keep your position, do you then get the sort of major chip you can cash later to be like, so I dealt with this and now I get to talk. Now I get to say this is crap. Mm-hmm. Well, existing and existing in that character is a reprimand by itself, I think. Not just to her positions, but even her claims that she thinks that this is a dangerous population for some reason, or a threatening population. Uh, that puts a lot of pressure on, on Miller. But I, I really appreciated your uh, bringing that up, Lauren, because I saw Radcliffe speak. I saw, you know, Redmayne speak, or Watson speak, you know. And I haven't seen a Miller statement that just doesn't mean anything in particular. I'm kind of glad that let, let the other people do the work. Right. Can I speak for... Just a second, sort of, it's a little bit tangential, but back to uh, some of Rowling's vocabulary. So listening to Tolanda speak about being gaslit or having one's existence just negated you know, mm-hmm. by this. I don't believe in you, therefore you don't exist, therefore you must be confused about whether you exist or you have some villainous agenda by claiming to exist. So I am a cis, traditional Caucasian mommy (laughs) professor I have big problem with the beginning of the conversation about people who menstruate and all of the conversation about how biological sex is physically manifested as evidence of sex because I have fought infertility dealing with menopause (laughs) Mm. so the fact is that my initial response to the women, people who menstruate argument was actually one as a cis woman that said, you know, that's bogus because that's not even scientifically valid or appropriate or relevant, right? You're trying to use biology as if you're some sort of scientist. We could talk about genetics or something perhaps, but you can't use that in that way because I am tired of having fertility be the only definition for what it means to be a woman, right? That's ridiculous, right? And it 
it's not feminist in my opinion. It's continuing to use a male dominated mode of defining the other that has to do with the function of, of women traditionally in society. So that's part of where I get frustrated by her. And I do feel I'm, I'm a Protestant church going married parent. And I often feel in my very traditional part of Texas, uh, that advocacy has to come to me because there are so few people of color or people who come from backgrounds that are not mainstream Christian and so forth. Uh, I don't know how much they want to say, but I think it should be me who says, you can have an egg hunt daycare at the university, but freaking stop calling it Easter. Right? Not just because you have two Jewish kids in your class, but because your Orthodox parents are like, now I have to re-explain what season Easter is in, right? So stop it. You don't have to do that. Why do you have to have Christmas parties? You don't have to have Christmas parties. Stop it. Just have a study break with food. It's okay. You can have gingerbread house. I don't care. You, right. All of this. So it comes, it comes back to like the vocabulary and positions of power. And she has them all. She has the celebrity. She has money. She has whiteness. Right. And I was also shocked that she brought this up. I had to keep reminding myself that she is not in America right now. She wants to speak as if she can speak to American culture. She has failed at that in fantastic ways. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so her, she has a tin ear, right. For a lot of things. So she wrote from a very British response to the wars and that's great. And that's useful to me as a professor, but it isn't translating where it should into other things. It comes with the baggage of British colonialism and the ties of British colonialism and American colonialism to white feminism. Mm -hmm. White feminism is hard. many of the non-Dan Radcliffe responses to rolling statements, especially from trans and non-binary people of color have said you have got to couch this in a conversation about colonialism that mm -hmm. the white woman with the vapors because others are going to you know <laughs> right that's i mean that is so often used to keep conversations focused on white female bodies mm -hmm. that in a way that yes that need protecting right and you can't you can't do that you can't I mean, you, I mean, it's so, I, I'm completely reminded of that woman in Central Park who tried to Ugh. call the police on a black man for being near her. You know, it's the same thing that if a trans person needs to go potty in the stall next to you and you're thinking about them going potty, I think that's more of a you problem than a them problem, mm -hmm. right? As Chris said before, why does it bother you? I don't want to know what's happening in the stall next to me. In fact, I often will put my earphones in so I don't have to hear well, it. Well, it bothers you because you fundamentally believe you're in control of other people's behaviors. Yeah. That's why it bothers you. It bothers you because you fundamentally believe the universe literally bends around you. And that as you want things... Those are the things that should happen because you're used to getting what you want. And I 
I use this metaphor with my students all the time. When you are in a position of privilege, any maneuver towards equality feels like oppression. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, of course, because someone isn't doing exactly what you're used to them doing because you're used to benefiting from their oppression, then it feels as though you're the one being targeted. It feels as though you're the one being inconvenienced. And I am very much at a, at a point in my life where I've stopped caring about that. Not stopped caring about my own everyone bending to my will, but I've stopped caring about people who want to bellyache that they are no longer in positions of power. I, I, I've stopped, I don't care anymore. I'm not going to listen to someone who has spent their entire life getting five things complaining to me that they only got four things. I, I'm not doing that anymore. Um, and I'm not giving that person voice or power in my life and I'm not paying attention to them anymore because ultimately that's what they want. A woman who calls who calls the police on a dude in Central Park for enforcing a rule that she should have been following in the first place that she chose not to follow. That woman does not get the benefit of my sympathy nor does she get the benefit of my attention. She was in the wrong. She was proven to be in the wrong. She lost her job. She got kicked out of her apartment and they took her dog back. We're trying to have a civilization over here and you either (laughs) want to be a part of it or you don't. Nice. I like that. That, that, That's the bottom line. (laughs) Right. I think at some point we have to walk this line, right? Between, and, and Chris and I are both parenting, right? Between saying to my kid, right? That person's just being a bully. You don't listen to what they say. What they say is invalid, but it still affects them. Mm-hmm. Right? What's being said is still affecting that. I say my children because they're the young. I'm around them all the time and I feel responsible for their well-being. Right? So, so it, it's a hard line to walk, right? Between saying she doesn't matter. She doesn't matter. And saying, actually, if she hurts somebody, it matters. That we should say that's hurtful. You have to stop. Yeah. And do something about making it stop. It, this, all of this makes me think a little bit about, I was in graduate school in the mid-90s. And my first encounter really with uh, civil rights for the LGBTQIA community was meeting a faculty member who didn't have medical benefits for his partner and this battle at the university over, over that. And at the same time, Disney was facing uh, that decision and they offered benefits uh, to same-sex partners. And the Southern Baptist Convention lost its little mind, little bitty mind <laughs> over that and called for a boycott. And I don't really see that Disney lost a whole lot of that. So this is the thing to me that whatever Warner Brothers does it can do and it will survive oh warner brothers will absolutely survive warner brothers this is not going to hurt warner brothers at all speaking of power right now i do actually have it and the power is this i'm looking at the clock (laughs) and and the clock is telling me we gotta wrap this up so i will move us 
to our final question, which is, at the end of the day, J.K. Rowling and her, however you want to classify them, uh, comments, comments, commentary. So what? The series and the fandom are more important than an individual creator. And with that power is the responsibility to hold them to task for having harmed that community. Whether it's just letting her know that we were harmed or that we will outlive her. Because, you know, I agree with your capitalist cynicism that, you know, it's not going to hurt her, but at least she can know. You know, so this, this series and this fandom will outlive her toxicity. It matters because words have power. And so I believe that having a response to her is important because otherwise, like, imagine that this at all, I mean, it's not enough to simply believe that she's wrong, but I'm just thinking of, I'm thinking in particular of an article that I read by a trans author who decided not to die by suicide as a child because they needed to know how Harry Potter ended. The series saved their life. And now, if it weren't for the backlash against the author's comments, what if their tie to this world was untethered because this thing that saved their life has this toxic toxicity around it now? And so, so that's why it's important for us to be having these conversations. And that's why it's important for the responses that have been out there. Stephen King tweeting back, yes, trans women are women. And then her being very petty and deleting the tweet. That, it matters. It matters hugely. I would say from, as the historian in the room, that context matters. And that... I think it will be good for scholars and fans to use this moment to expand the conversation about these Harry Potter texts and how we can allow them to transcend their author. I think it is totally valid for someone to say, this is not my fight. This is not my community. This is not a thing that affects me. I also think it's totally valid to say, I know what it's like to walk around in brown skin and to have that affect my day-to-day -day life. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And so anybody oppressed is enough for me to step in. Anybody, anybody who's, got it, who, who's got it worse right now, you know? Who's got it worse right now? And I don't have to be a part of the trans community in order to say, it's pretty messed up what's happening to y'all. And so, not my circus, not my monkeys, but for today, I'll help you clean up, you know? And and at the end, at the end of the day, that's what it is for me. I will, I, I have in full disclosure said, this is not my top of the list fight this is not the thing i fight towards every single day but if i can make my if i can make life like this much easier for even if it's just for my my two trans friends that i have 
then it's enough for me to jump in. I'm not going to let you mess with my friends at the end of the day. And you know what? J.K. Rowling kind of taught us that too. Mm-hmm. So hmm. if, I'm, if I'm not going to let you mess with my friends and you taught me that, that means that includes you. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to let J.K. Rowling mess with my friends. Yeah. So that's where we're at for today, folks. We will be back in two weeks for the season finale, for the season four finale. I do not know what's on tap for that episode yet, or I would give you a preview, but I have some ideas of where it might be going. But you'll just have to wait and see. You'll have to come back in two weeks and find out what's going on. But for today, I want to thank my guests. I want to thank Dr. Lauren Kamachi, as always. And I want to thank our new friends, our new guests, Dr. Elizabeth Morrow-Clark and Talon Henderson. For these three, I have been Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers. Thanks for joining us. See you in two weeks. Black Lives Matter. Wash your hands. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a review wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcastdcw. Check out thedeconstructionworkers.com or follow us at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers or on Instagram at deconstructionworkers. This podcast is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, thank you for supporting alternate scholarship and academic public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is copyright 2020, all rights reserved.